Hello and welcome to Talking Capital. I'm Ian Barnard, CEO of CapGen, and I'm here with our Chief Investment Officer, Robert Sears, to answer three questions that have been posed to us by our clients and friends in recent weeks. For those who don't know us already, CapGen is a private investment office for families with capital. We are Go Anywhere Investors, so in the course of these episodes, you can expect us to cover any question across any asset class in any region of the world from bricks and mortar to portfolio derivatives. In summary, this is a podcast where we answer the questions playing on the minds of sophisticated long-term investors. Do subscribe if that sounds up your street and you'll enjoy two episodes a month of Talking Capital. Perhaps we can start today, Robert, with some some recent data. We've had flash PMIs for March, which I think are generally held to have surprised to the upside. W- what do you make of that? Do you think that's a turning point? Are we looking at a materially healthier global economy than perhaps we all anticipated was going to be the case at the start of the year? Yeah, I think it it is a continuation of some of the themes we've had so it's, i think it's it's interesting but it's still it, it still is a difficult environment to unpick so i think on the on the face of it it continues the data towards the end of last year and the start of the year the first two months of the year the data was generally pretty positive so i think clearly there has been growth in q1 across a lot of regions so clearly the us is still growing europe's Surprise! the upside growing. China's had quite a a decent bounce in the first quarter coming out of COVID lockdowns. So there has been this generally good growth. I think where the market sort of had its um, little shock was clearly around the banking crisis. So that was where suddenly the focus was from rates are going up, we're in a good economic environment to actually financial stability concerns. Now, some of those concerns have sort of ebbed away. And under the surface, again, we see the data generally has been pretty benign, or certainly from the PMIs, it it appears benign. But I think that's hiding a, a few things. So I think the first thing to say would be, if we look at the US, the data was better generally at the start of Q1. So there was good January, but actually a lot of sectors starting to deteriorate towards the end of the quarter. So the the early reading into Q2, potentially there's going to be good growth in Q2, but that doesn't actually mean that we're not heading into recession later in the year. So I think that's the first point. There has been this sort of patchy growth. Certainly in, in Europe, there has been a bounce back. But again, I think w- w- what we're seeing is it isn't unified growth. The growth has been stronger in China there is this weakening growth in the US, albeit, and then maybe Europe sort of bounced a bit from the end of last year. But the big point to say would be, it continues the theme we talked about, this COVID distortion. COVID distorted so many variables. It was this massive impact, sudden stop, and the ripples of that are flowing through the economy as, as we continue through lots of data. So what is the big ripple in the data that we see in the PMIs? It continues the trend. Service sector PMIs look really strong. And if you just looked at those, doesn't look recessionary at all. But actually manufacturing PMIs, Yes, in the US, there was a tiny bounce in the, the flash number for April, but actually manufacturing across most sectors looks recessionary. So that's been the big discrepancy, which which still remains at the moment. So service sector 
that's pretty strong, manufacturing not. And this is why it's such a difficult environment really to, to read the cycle and why a lot of the manufacturing typical indicators are pointing to recession sooner than some of the service sector indicators. So I suppose if, if, we, if we're breaking it out, it's still showing that distortion. So which is going to win out in the end is, is the question. One part of that, the question, why manufacturing maybe had a bit of a bounce was, yes, some of those supply side COVID issues are working their way through. So that's, that's the good news. Those backlogs are all being removed. The supply shortage issues are, are being worked through, which is good for inflation. But what it also means is actually when that works through fully, what are we going to see for growth uh, going forwards? And that's where the data in the PMIs is a bit more negative. The new order data continues to be negative month on month. So actually looking to the future, once you get rid of that inventory destocking, actually new orders point to um, pretty negative future growth for the economy. So certainly in the US, it does look slowing when we look through some of that data. And really, when we look at even at the service sector data, again, consumption may hold up, but actually business investment, probably that's going to be where we see more of the pain later in the year. So the the lagged response of higher rates, the lagged response of a lot of these uh, tightening of conditions, and the tightening credit conditions that we expect when we, well, I think a key data point to look at will be looking at um, senior bank lending survey coming out early in May to see if we do see that credit tightening. So I think there, there are these issues uh, of concern. But overall, yes, growth looks pretty good on the PMIs. But now look, if we turn to some of the other indicators, looking at the leading indicator in the US across the, the 10 different indicators you, you measure there, that's turned pretty negative, is pointing to a recession. So some of those typical lead indicator data points that we look at look recessionary. The new orders look pretty recessionary. So while it's a mixed picture, it doesn't hide the fact that slowdown in the second half of the year looks still looks pretty likely. So I think it's it's too soon to be too positive with some of the service sector data, albeit it is pretty hard environment to actually navigate when there are all uh, still these distortions. So I think watch it closely. Um, and the bad news is, is actually good news can become bad news. If the, the growth is too strong, that's where actually the markets have run up on uh, the, the hope for actually a pivot in policy. And I think we're far less likely to see that in, in Europe, as an example, and, and in the US. The central banks are not going to cut rates as aggressively while growth still remains relatively rosy in the service sector. So, that, And the service sector inflation is, again, the other problem. That sticky inflation could remain. And if even if we go back to the goods sector, Things like used car prices, a classic distortion area, which was a major part of why CPI went up early in the the crisis and had been going down month on month. Finally, that started to tick up. So I think the inflation sort of decline, yes, we do expect disinflation to come. But actually, if growth surprises the upside, that inflation is even more likely to be sticky, which then leads to higher, higher policy rates from the central bank. So I suppose that's the reflexive problem for the markets. We don't want the news to actually be too good. So we're still in this environment where I think it's too early to sound a bell of that everything's fine and growth is looking pretty rosy. Uh, that's not really the case when we look through the data. There are enough points that are, are still pointing to a slowing growth for the second part of the year, albeit it may be a milder recession and it may hit business face facing companies more than consumer facing companies if the consumer remains relatively robust. So it's still very, very difficult environment um, to monitor. But as we mentioned in the last call, I suppose the problem is the policymakers have not just the problem of 
they've got high inflation and contending with whether growth is slowing and, and looking at employment. But they're also faced with the problem that actually there is a massive debt overhang. Uh, that's another problem to, to consider alongside inflation and uh, actually financial conditions. The banking crisis problems have not gone. So while Growth looked a bit more rosy. Even um, just uh, yesterday, actually, we we were hearing actually the, the a lot of the banks that were under concern before have still got um, issues, and and the deposits are, are still declining in those banking sectors. So the banking crisis has not been eroded completely. Exactly, Robert. I mean, interpreting economic data and PMIs is hard. Full stop. It's harder when. Uh, you know that you're nearing the end of a cycle, or at least there's something going on. It's even harder still if you have to do that in the aftermath of COVID, which continues to have these sort of very distorting effects on economies. So teasing out what what the answer is, is I think uh, harder now than it's ever been because of this big COVID-related distortion or distortions that are still working their way through. And I wondered if we might segue a little bit into China, because China in a way is arguably even more COVID distorted than the Western world because they continue to keep protective measures in place long after they were being taken off in Western countries. And we had that little big emergence, the, the, the sort of pivotal decision that they were going to end their zero COVID policy and, and start to normalise. And you, Robert, I know I've talked a lot about you, to everyone watch out for China. So I wonder if you can sort of weave China and where China is in and of itself, but also weave it into how it's going to affect this more global economic outlook for the quarters ahead. Certainly China has surprised the, well, it's surprised the upside. There's been positive growth from China and and there's likely to continue to be. So it is going to be a a positive growth impulse for the world. One of the indicators we watch closely in China, the credit impulse, so the acceleration in credit in, in China has been going up. So total social financing is increasing and that typically does lead to economic activity. So that's that's the good news. There has been some pickup in consumption activity in China, again, pretty positive. There's the very early signs that maybe the housing market is finding a bottom. I think that's where you'd feel more confidence if we, there really is a, a bottom in that sector and we do see more, more construction activity. That's not conclusive at, the, at, this, at this point in time. And I think the problem is a lot of the growth in China is not going to spill over to the rest of the world as much as it did in the past. So, yes, it's good for certain sectors. If we think about Europe, Europe's benefited from falling energy prices because actually we got through the winter. There was a, uh, it was a milder winter. There was enough energy gas storage put to one side, enough moved from other areas. So um, Europe managed to get through the winter unscathed by the energy crisis. Prices have come down, beneficial for European equities. The other source from China, if we weave it in, is actually luxury goods orders have ticked up. So there, the consumption activity in China, spending on those luxury goods companies in, in Europe is another sort of second wind, or has been a second wind to this point. If we look at another area, if we look at Japan, good news for Japan is actually, yes, growth picking up. One area in particular, if we look at tourism in Japan, There'd been a massive spike actually in the in the Abe years coming into 2020, but clearly lockdowns uh, had um, completely diminished that number. Actually, it's only about 30% below those high levels going into COVID. So that's the good news uh, for Japan. Actually, the interesting part is basically no Chinese tourists are in that number. It's all 
tourists from the rest of the world because there are some restrictions on larger groups entering Japan. So that's one way that the rest of Asia certainly could benefit from Chinese tourism. That hasn't really picked up as much as it might have done. So yes, there'll be some spillover, maybe not much as much as we think. And turning back to that first question about economic growth, you only need to look at commodity data to see actually since really Q1 last year, the, the, the commodity prices are really telling you demanded destruction is happening. So even as we speak now, iron ore prices are, are dropping. So you're not seeing that impulse from China feed through into, into commodity prices. And even the oil prices we talked about before. Yes, some of the actions from OPEC to put a floor under the price has worked, but prices haven't uh, skyrocketed despite the relatively tight supply conditions. So I think the commodity market is signaling recession. And the one other area I wanted to say, so yes, China can benefit the rest of the world. It certainly benefits its own stock market. The problem China has, firstly, is Chinese equities are now very underowned by foreigners. So geopolitical risk is really to, to play with that. And we're, see, we're seeing some of the more negative pressures in recent weeks, again, on, on Chinese equities. So you do need to see a bit of thawing of uh, geopolitical concerns to see a big foreign bid, certainly for Chinese equities from the rest of uh, the Western world, if not the, the rest of the emerging world. So I think that's one of the other areas. But I think the, to, to the point about it, so falling commodity prices, watch for tightening credit in the US in particular, but it's all, also in Europe, European banks tightening credit. But actually, the labour market is the crucial part. So what does the Fed really watch for? And what really will show a recession is happening is looking at the labor market data and that's been very strong but actually some of the cracks are starting to to shine through so in the us jobless claims which typically leads have started to surprise negatively so while pmis look good we're see, we're seeing some of that we are we've seen layoffs move from the tech sector to to a few other sectors already disney's one example but also more importantly if you look at permanent jobless permanent unemployed that characteristic. So ignoring the fact that some people are certainly at the lower salary end are coming back into the labour market. If you look at the permanent unemployed, that number has suddenly spiked up quite a bit. It's of the magnitude that you typically see going to recession. And the the issue about the labour market is you don't normally see a small increase in unemployed. Once you get through half a percent, one percent, it typically is one and a half percent or more. and And you see a real proper increase in unemployment and really recessionary conditions. So it's not linear. That, I think, is another crucial aspect to watch. So yes, China's been good and there have been some positive spillovers, but actually not as much as we think. And some of these other indicators in the US labour market in particular, I think, watch closely because although conditions, some growth has been relatively uh, robust, it won't be unified across different regions. China probably will still have relatively more robust growth for the rest of the year with policy support. But the US is likely to slow in the second half of the year and into next year. And I think you see that in a way. So so what lies ahead for the uh, global economy? And should we look at these PMIs and be optimistic and think that actually things are going to be better than we anticipated at the start of the year? Or uh, as you say, Robert, is it actually that, yes, there are these distortions that have made it hard to interpret, but if you actually look through some of the data, there are some worrying signs. And certainly our positioning, I think, is for there being likely to be more bad news than good news. And I guess that's reflected a little bit in in the bonds versus equities discussion, isn't it? So if you look at 2022, bonds and equities held hands together and you know, jump down the the lift shaft. Uh, But now they're 
pursuing slightly different paths. If you look at volatility in bond markets, it's pretty high compared to historic norms, whereas volatility in equity markets is a, a tad lower than its historical average. And we've seen equity markets have a pretty strong first quarter following it away from what we saw a bit in the last quarter of last year. Uh, and yet, certainly, bond markets have been much more uh, troubled. And the bond market looks as though it's saying there's going to be a recession and the equity market saying, no, 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 it doesn't look as bad as all that. So I wonder if you could talk about what's going on. How do these two <laughs> divergent views of what's going to happen coexist? I mean, who's right and who's wrong? Yeah, so, some of it is certainly is, is pointing to the bond market maybe, as it typically has in the past, be more at sort of anticipated recessions a bit earlier, the, the sort of negative mindset of a bond investors typically is be being better at calling the economic cycle. But as we suggest, it's hard to call the cycle this time around, number one. And number two, there are certainly more policy distortions. So that's the big argument for actually you can throw away the yield curve. It doesn't really give you the same indicators as the past because there's been all this QE, governments controlling basically the yield curve. So you, you lose some of the data. I think that sort of this time is different argument. There's always an element of truth, but actually it misses, misses the point. And so I think the amount of inversions that we're seeing, it is pointing to certainly anticipation of where policy rates are likely to, to lead. So the bond market is suggesting rates are going to be forced to cut because of, of slowing growth while the equity market arguably is taking all the good news. So it's saying, great news, thank you, bond market, rates are going down, so that's good for our discount rate, but ignoring the fact that actually rates are going down because earnings are going to decline. So I think that's that's a bit of the dichotomy at the moment. And I, I suppose under the surface, and we're just going to earnings season now, the next earnings season, which will be really crucial to sort of see how we're heading. But Earnings have been declining. Profit margins for companies have been declining off very high levels in the US. So they're declining and the future outlook does look worse. We're likely to see some of that pain that's not fully um, in the price at the moment. So I think if we're to say the two at the moment, certainly last year was all about disc problems in the bond market feeding through into equity market. So far, we haven't seen the bond market still pricing recession. The equity market's not pricing in an earnings recession at the moment. So that's the shoe that needs to drop. And if we don't have a real earnings, recession actually why would bond yields need to need to decline so what one of the two markets in a way is going to be proven right i think the issue we've sort of been in stasis really since last october in a way there has been this sort of counter trend rally to the top of the range again for equities where in europe now the range is back to the highs of the last five years or so and in the us it's back to the highs of the, the sort of high point of the range since last october or the, or the summer really so we, we're waiting in this range really to break out to decide is is it is it truly uh, going to be this really light recessionary environment and equities are off the races again and perhaps the big catalyst for that or looking to the next big thing is actually the market's being held up a lot in equity market by a, a small handful of stocks in the tech sector so is it the ai trend of and prices going to sort of boom levels with policy rates being cut too early before inflation is defeated leads to this sort of frenzied boom, certainly that's a possibility. Um, and that's in a way we're, we're sort of tiptoeing towards, is that about to be priced in or not? But really, it is within this range. Um, and waiting to see if if it's recession is, is coming or not, if rates will fall, and with them, earnings fall on, on equity markets. And interestingly, the volatility, as you brought up in the move index at the end of March, actually, the, the ratio moved to the VIX was at 
at high levels, so meaning that the move was relatively high compared to the VIX, sort of as high as it's been since 2005. Now, it's been at these types of levels when we've typically had bond tantrums in the past, even like 2013. So it's not super high. But the VIX, uh, the, the move index uh, for bond markets, yes, it's come off a bit since those banking concerns in the middle of March, but it's still at relatively elevated levels while the VIX is is now dipped below its its median level. So it's a quite low level. So I think there is this discrepancy, this distortion between the two. And I think it will, it does need to be resolved one way or the other. It, it's not entirely surprising we've got here, given that the first impulse was all about removing that risk of deflation, removing the extremely low interest rates. That was the shock. So it's not surprising that fixed income volatility went from the really low levels of QE back up to elevated levels. And we haven't seen seen it ripple through yet because we haven't really felt the teeth of the earnings recession. But how are we positioning? Certainly, I think we're taking advantage of cheaper volatility in equity markets and expensive valuations to find ways to protect against these moves, but at the same time trying to add some some exposure to, to falling rates, which is why we added 30-year bonds at the end of last year, and we'll look to add a bit more exposure to long-duration um, US government bonds. Perhaps what I can ask you to expand a little bit on that about positioning. You talked about the additional duration we've put into portfolios and the slight reduction in equity market, long equity positioning anyway. I wonder if this is an opportunity to just talk a little bit about linking it to, you know, expectations for the quarters ahead and how in our minds we're reconciling the bonds versus equity message. Just talk a bit more broadly about, about our positioning in the portfolios, what we have put in place to, and what are the scenarios that we're managing for? So I think, Scenario number one, if we're talking about that, is the biggest enemy this year. I think last year, the enemy was about inflation and the discount rate. This year, the enemy is about recession and earnings recession. So if we're thinking about how do we protect our portfolios, firstly, through direct hedging and controlling how much equity exposure we have. That's why we have portfolio hedges um, hedging a 20% drop of, of equities from here. For that type of earnings recession, why we've trimmed equity exposure, and why we've used long short exposure to replace some of our long only exposure. So I think that's one of the ways we control for it. I think the second way we control and, and benefit from recession is from having had no bonds last year, we added bonds as we're talking about. That's what, a measure to protect you against a disinflationary impulse during a during the recession. So that's protect against that scenario. Now I think importantly, you don't want one type of protection only. So I think equity hedges are great when equities have a, a rapid decline, um, that sort of crash moment. But a steady decline actually can be pretty hard to, to, head, uh, to hedge using, using options. And that's where hedge funds actually benefit from that type of um, steady decline. So an example being trend followers through CTAs, through macro managers. So that was a good ballast last year. There are times when it struggles, as we talked about in the last episode, during a month like March, when we have that extreme volatility and reversion of some trends. But that's a good a good balance, particularly in an environment where, like last year, increasing rates and higher inflation could be the enemy as, as much as, as falling rates. So you don't just want bonds for that environment. So I think bonds certainly work. You still want some of those diversifying strategies. And thirdly, I think gold is another good example of, of an asset which does well in times of crisis and does well when there's currency debasement, as that's one of the potential threats. So yes, gold is another um, source of protection. And I think the third scenario to protect against medium-term risk of higher inflation is certainly something that we really want to control and look for. And that's where we've used um, inflation swaps as well, alongside 
companies with pricing power, value against growth. Um, so I think that's another scenario which we're positioning for and protecting against because that that's a real risk for a lot of assets. But I think also to, it's important to say the big me- main part of the portfolio is actually growth can still happen as we're talking about. So you can't just go completely into cash uh, in this type of environment. So still being exposed to companies which look relatively attractive, finding the pockets of, of value, like value against growth, rest of the world against US, Japan was one example we added last year, are sources that can, can drive return in the medium term. And I think the last area of risk that I'll, I'll just flag, that comment we talked about earlier about the potential for this tech fuel boom, that's one area which we've got some protection for, but maybe not as much as we need given the the real change underway in terms of, of AI. So that's certainly the area we're looking to to hedge against um, that potential for an upside expansion and the real disruptive change that we expect to happen from the AI trend. Well, let's let's take that, Rob, and talk a little bit more explicitly about AI. We've certainly touched on it on a few occasions in these episodes. And it's a phenomenon, isn't it, that we have been conceptually aware of for quite a long time. I was thinking of the 2001 Space Odyssey, which that we, well, Maybe we don't all, but for those of us who've watched it, has uh, Hal, the sentient supercomputer, who has a sinister sinister side, and and I've given it a a pronoun there. Uh, That was a 1968 film based on Arthur C. Clarke by Stanley Kubrick, based on Arthur C. Clarke's short stories, one of which was The Sentinel, uh, which he wrote in 1951. So we have for a long time been able to conceive of sentient supercomputers and uh, some sort of non-human artificial intelligence. and But it's become real now and very tangible. And I suppose a lot of it has been around chat GPT, which has, it's not all that's going on in AI, but it's the bit that made all of us reflect on what it might be capable of doing. And the power it offers is very, very uh, extensive. So I asked our head of IT to just give me some headlines on what he thought Jack GPT might be able to do for us, uh, fired off an email. And on there, he listed, well, it could transform consumer services. We could respond very quickly to information requests and queries. It could assist with KYC and AML on compliance. We could use it to analyze data to make investment recommendations. It could speed up customer onboarding. It could assist with client reporting. It could assist in managing portfolios from an IT perspective. It could write code very fast with bespoke applications. It could troubleshoot the code and fix it, provide solutions for infrastructure issues, project manage entire rollout, design and create plans for complex networks, brainstorm ideas, become a personal assistant, and translate text. And that was... (laughs) Uh, an email fired off with a couple of minutes of thought. So we sort of have known about the potential for a long time because we've been able to conceive of AI before it actually existed. It now, albeit in a pretty inchoate and nascent form, exists in chat GPT. But I guess many of us have have more questions than answers. And it came up actually in a conversation with a client yesterday. And I think this idea that we have more questions than answers at the moment, perhaps a simple way of looking. But I wonder if you could talk, Robert, about generally where you think we are in the AI evolution or revolution, if you were to sort of stand back and look at it again, rather more conceptually, where where do you think we are? So um, AI is the next big thing in venture. So that's a good thing or a bad thing. It's where all the focus is today. All the talent is flowing in that direction. 
So that's that's we know the money's going there. But if we compare it even to crypto, which was the, the last big thing, there was some real de- uh, you know opportunities, and I think there is still some technology and benefits from crypto that we'll see. As with any trend, you get the people trying to steal money in, in there as well. So you get all the rubbish, but there is some disruption. I think this time round, this is far bigger. So if we compare it, it's it's on a par with really sort of bringing, uh, I, I suppose, the first PCs, first personal computers. It's a big moment. It's certainly, I think, bigger than sort of, if we're thinking the last generation really about mobile internet was the, the last sort of wave of, of large companies, the large winners. This is for real. It's a big trend. It's going to be really disruptive across all our activity. We don't even realize it. So first thing I would say about the trend is, well, where are we? Clearly, it's early stages. But the dangerous thing, for our, which I think we, is, is where we ought to cast our minds back to those first first early days when we all heard about COVID and it seemed number of cases were hardly any and it's not something we need to worry about. The rate of improvement in AI is exponential and our minds are used to thinking in a linear process that you sort of just increase slowly and away we go. So yes, it's early stages, but the rate of improvement is just going to go off the charts. It's sort of the way we think about investing, compounding interest, but even that has to work over a number of years to work. This time, the, the compounding, the generations of improvement, rather than being in years, you can think of really it's weeks and months. Each generation of, of improvement in the models, uh, in the amount of data that, that the models are being applied to is just off the charts. And we see that with the user numbers in for OpenAI's ChatGPT. Really, it, you know, the time to a million users, 100 million users is just dramatically quicker than companies in the past. So I think, yes, it's early and we can still take some time to think about it but it's going to hit us faster than we realize. Now, where we are in terms of the actual AI, again, the improvements are really rapid that you can see in in the use cases. So yes, there are still teething issues. Uh, When you use ChatGPT, you get these hallucinations where you get, it feels like a reasonable sounding garbage coming back. They can make up references of, of academic papers that don't exist. So you still need the user there actually to, to control. But for a user, it increases your productivity already dramatically um, in a number of different areas, which is really where we're going to see the early use cases. So it's not a question of suddenly removing lots of jobs and people losing their position. That may come in certain areas. But at the moment, actually, it's about thinking how you can improve the productivity of existing people. And I think the one area that strikes me as well is actually the ability to learn languages, both sort of speaking languages, but also computer languages is suddenly dramatically low. Actually, to be able to speak English, and this is why it's a, a game changer, if you can speak English logically and be able to prompt, that's that's where the new technology, you can ask for letters to be written in foreign languages, you can write computer code dramatically um, more, more quickly. So suddenly, people with even just a basic amount of programming can become a 10x software engineer. So we already see that level of improvement. So the people that can take advantage, the companies that can take advantage, it really can increase productivity quite quickly. We don't really understand the areas, the new business models that may come. But I think, yes, there's going to be massive disruption. There are going to be new jobs opened up. It should be a good thing for growth and actually be one of the few forces that could keep back inflation. Albeit there is this risk, where, depending on who you speak to, between 2 and 
20% of, of AI just actually becoming a problem. And we see the negative sides of people using this extremely useful technology for, for nefarious purposes. So I think that's, that's one problem that hopefully is the difficulty of you don't want to regulate too much. It's part of the, the arms race in politics between the US and China. Humanity is going to develop quickly. You want to develop uh, as fast as possible. But there does need to be some oversight, at least, to make sure we don't end in a, in a negative direction. But I think where sort of users are going to really notice the benefits is when we see more use of APIs, which we're starting to see. And that's really where the AI itself can then interface with the existing technology. So you can set your AI tasks and they can go out and book your holidays and do it all for you and just come back and solve the problem. So I think that's where most consumers are going to start uh, to see the issue. But I think now is the moment, which certainly we're thinking about how to use AI as a business, but also um, as an investor, how do you take advantage of these trends? And I think it's early early thoughts about uh, what to do, but there there are a number of different avenues and it's hard to necessarily to pick the winner at this, this stage, but it's certainly a process that we need to go through uh, to try and protect portfolios for, for, uh, for, for the medium to longer term. Yes. There are there are so many reflections, aren't there, on what this this might mean? I was just listening to you reflecting on. So AI is a challenge; it's also an opportunity. We also face climate change. Linking the two could be very very powerful, as you say. One of the things it's able to do is to uh, to act as an API to connect different technologies. We know that energy efficiency and grid optimization and things like that are going to be important parts of a. Uh, of a low carbon future and AI could be sort of fantastically helpful as one tiny, tiny example in sort of optimizing energy literacy. So as you say, Robert, it's sort of huge potentials. I, I think your message is, or our message perhaps is, uh, it's hard to know right now what the answer's going to be, but what is really, really important is that we all start asking ourselves questions. So this is not something uh, where you can say, mm, okay, I'll, I'll wait for somebody to tell me what to do, or I'll sort of wait for this to become settled. I think our strong feeling is it's very, very difficult and complex, but it is incumbent for all sorts of reasons, both prudential, but also in the sense of opportunity, that we all think very, very carefully uh, about it. Yes, yeah, so I think I think a few few reflections to pull out is it's it's not about making one bet and placing all your your eggs it is about that diversified portfolio and it's where you need to be able to straddle or it's useful to be able to straddle private public markets so if we think in vc arguably that one of the the benefits of the technology is actually to be a company in ai space you don't need many employees two people rather than 10 people, you know, to, to get off the ground, given that you can code so quickly. So in, even in the VC world, maybe it's a question of having lots of small bets and actually needing to go earlier stage with, with seed investments is the way to capture some of the growth. So I think even within venture, it's thinking about it slightly differently. In the equity space, I think you definitely need to go active. It's helpful, some of the areas to consider maybe long short managers, because the winners and losers within tech are going to be extreme. So some of the software as a service businesses suddenly are going to have a much less defensible business in this environment where you can create the, the software perhaps much quicker. So having an active manager can control exposure, I think is important. And equally, when we're talking about this, with the new technology, new innovation, there are these hype cycles, valuations go to extremes and then correct, albeit some winners um, succeed, like we saw in the dot-com. So being careful and considered, I think, is important. So that's where active could be important. And in public markets, again, the winners of these large models, yes, OpenAI, Microsoft look like they've got an advantage at the moment. 
but we don't know the the quality ultimately of what Google will provide. And and maybe in the end, there'll be just a handful of those large providers. Maybe Elon Elon Musk's uh, Truth GPT will be another. You know, the, the models will become maybe a bit commoditized at that point, and then it, maybe it's control of the data. So. Even in the public markets, you maybe can take advantage, but it, again, it's not placing all your eggs on NVIDIA, but look at a number of the different large providers who could win. So yes, it, we, we don't have all the answers, but I think the, the answer is going to be a combination of those different areas and and thinking maybe slightly differently in each of them than, than the sort of traditional approach of the past of just picking one winner and placing all your bets in, in that area. Wonderful. Robert, thank you very much. Thank you for joining us. And if you enjoyed today's discussion, please do subscribe to the podcast. Bye for now. Thank you.